Well, recently I had the chance to watch um, a movie called The Social Dilemma. Uh, it is one of the number one films on Netflix right now. Uh, and it's a documentary that examines social media in our culture today, um, specifically through the lens of the people that created it and now have a certain sense of regret. And, and so you have all these high up executive people in the early days of Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, Twitter, and all those types of platforms talking about kind of the dark side of what it is that they've made. Um, it was a fascinating look because what it taught me is how social media actually uses the user as a product in a way. See, when you use those types of services, like your Facebook, your Instagram, your Twitter, um, it, it's free to you to use. You know, they don't charge you to actually be on those platforms, but one way or another, money has to be made. And, and so that money comes through advertising, through advertisers that pay to run their ads on those platforms. So when you scroll and you see an ad, you know, it's, it's paying for you being able to use those services for free. But what the, what the, what the companies really go after are what we call targeted advertising. The, the reason so many people want to pay money to advertise to you on Facebook is because Facebook knows so much about you, as does Instagram, as do the other. You know, This is not a harp on any specific company, but they know all this stuff about you, and so they can say to advertisers, hey, we can show your ads to the people who we most likely think are going to actually be interested in your things. And so you, in a sense, are the product of social media. Now here's how they do it. Over the years, over your usage, they will collect what we deem in, in society as preferences. Every one of us has things that we favor or prefer. We like one thing more than another. Your favorite car, your favorite color, your favorite place to travel, your favorite ice cream flavor. What, some things that are mundane, some things that are really, really potentially private but through some sketchy tactics, not just on those platforms, but on the internet as a whole, these companies track you by understanding what you prefer, and then they take those things and they send them to advertisers and essentially sell the data of you in order to get um, the right advertisements in front of you. And because of that, people pay them an absurd amount of cash to do it. Now, the, the sermon is not to harp on social media use or even to be a lecture about how you're monetized as a, as a person in today's culture. That's not at all what we're getting at. But one of the things that we need to understand is we live in a culture that favors things. We all have inherent preferences and biases in our own way of thinking. Um, and this can be, again, in the small things. We inherently will prefer one flavor of something to the other, but it can also be in some more um, large-scale things. It can be we prefer to spend time with these people over these people. We, we think of, of this way of thinking, this political ideology, as, as better than we do this political ideology. We, we all live in a constant world of choice and preference. And so all social media does is take those choices and preference and feed them into a really smart algorithm and then sell them to advertisers. But we all have them. And, and the thing to know is that those preferences aren't always necessarily bad. It's not wrong to like something more. I much prefer chocolate to vanilla ice cream. There is nothing sinful. The Lord does not tell me that I have to hold both vanilla and chocolate ice cream in equal esteem because they're both ice cream that has been created by God. But, but there are some times when our preferences and our, our choices, our favored things 
do get in the way of worshiping God. And today, as we look at James 2, we want to dig into some of the type of favoritism that is not necessarily of the Lord. And and James really spends some time on this. One of the things that you've undoubtedly noticed about James is it's a really short book. So so when 13 verses are are devoted to something like favoritism, um, we need to understand that that's because James thinks of this as a really big deal. And in our examination of the book of James and the practical ways that we live out our faith, you know, it wouldn't have been, it's the, it's the chapter two, the first half of all of chapter two in a book that's just a couple chapters long. And so we need to spend some time examining how it is that favoritism can actually hinder the gospel and can be a real, a real sin in the eyes of the Lord. And so as we look at James 2, 1 through 13 this morning, you're going to notice four different things that James specifically says. And we'll read, we'll read through it together, and then we'll get into that. So let's, let's read together in James 2, 1 through 13, and then we'll pray, and then we'll, we'll dig in for this morning. Let's read. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin, and you are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So in this passage, James, as I said, gives us four things. So let let us pray together and then we'll look at what those four, four things specifically are. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the opportunity to dig into your word. God, we pray that this morning you would take this word and you would speak to it from us through my lips to our hearts, that we might be changed and shaped by your gospel of truth. We thank you for the words of James that enable us to understand practically how we are to live as followers of Christ. And this morning, we lift them up to you, and we ask that you, through your wisdom and your Holy Spirit, would enable us to see and hear what it is that you might have for us, so that we would leave this place, whether it is in the sanctuary, preaching from one's home, or or listening on the TVs in, in our living rooms, Father, that we would be shaped 
by what it is that you have for us this morning. We love you and we praise you and all his people said together, amen. So J James starts out with this illustration. There's, there's a, you know, a church gathering, presumptively. There, there's some argument about what exactly kind of gathering they're, they're talking about in the first few verses here. But the, the overarching consensus is that James is, gather, is talking about a church gathering of believers and in that church gathering, there's two men, types of men, that come walking into the door. And from the language and the way that James speaks, I think we can, we get the sense that he's talking about like an actual gathering. Now, this specific story might have not been something that he's recounting, but I think he's talking about it in a way that says that this is something that happens like frequently in the context, both culturally and, and, and time-wise that he's in. And so when he says, you know, a man that's rich and a man that's poor came in, I think what we can assume is that in the church that James's context is, there were poor and rich people coming in, and, and this treatment was actually pretty indicative of the way that people were being treated at the time, which is why he writes this address to, to his brothers and sisters in Christ. And so he says there was a rich man that came in that, you know, was bedazzled and well-dressed and had jewels and all those kinds of things. And, and when he arrived, the, the people, the ushers, so to speak, uh, they made sure to seat him in a very prominent place in the, in the service, in the gathering of the people, um, so that he would be seen, so that he could be sitting next to people, perhaps that he would want to be sitting next to. You know, they would put those folks together. And then a poor man came in, really barely with anything, and they sat him in a very less prominent place. Uh, one, of, one of the things culturally we can assume is maybe there wasn't even a seat. Maybe he was kind of in the standing room only section of the church. Um, or maybe there were even some seats up front near where the wealthy person was sat. But even though that was the case, when he came in, he was still told, no, 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 you, you belong back here. We're going to put you in this spot. And so James rails against this. He says, this, this can't possibly happen. Right? He's, he's upset. Um, and he says, is anyone among you sick? Let him call. Oh, I'm so sorry. I keep floor the page. <laughs> He says, for if a man wearing a golden ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, if you pay attention to the one who wears the clothing and say, sit here in a good place while you say to the poor man, you stand over here, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? <laughs> that's, that's James's take here. If you do this, you have essentially, by, by showing that favoritism of one over another, you have become a judge, and not just a judge, but a judge with evil thoughts. So why is that? Why is James so against this? See, it's one thing to say, you know, favoritism's not great. We shouldn't put people one place and other people another place. But, but James takes it really far. He says, no, 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 if you do this, you are judges with evil thoughts. Uh, he goes on as we read, he, he gives us those four reasons to explain why he thinks it's such a big deal, and I think we ought to listen to them. So here, here they are. I'll give them to you in order first, and then we'll walk through them in some detail. Number one, favoritism, according to James, is wrong because it is contrary to the idea, the theology of God's sovereignty. We'll, un we'll unpack that in a second. Number two, favoritism is wrong in the eyes of James because it aligns you with God's enemies. That, that's a weird one. Uh, we'll have to unpack that one, too. This is one of those, stay tuned till later, don't click off the video. Um, number three, favoritism in the eyes of James is wrong because it violates God's command of love. There's a very specific and plentiful times in scripture, God's command of love. 
and specifically love of neighbor. And so favoritism, James says, violates that command. And number four, favoritism is wrong in James's eyes because it fails to display God's mercy. And there's some real consequences when we fail to display the mercy of God. So, so let's walk through this together. Number one, favoritism is wrong because it is contrary to the sovereignty of God. It goes against the theology of a God who is sovereign. What does it mean for a God to be sovereign? For, for God to be sovereign over all things, it means that he is the one who is in charge. He is overarchingly, all-powerfully, majestically, omnipresent, above and through all things at all times. He was the instrument of creation, and he is the one who sustains and upholds. He also is the one who elects. As Reformed Christians, we believe that God elects people, that we don't go to heaven, that we don't get to live an eternal life on any of our own merits, and that we can't even choose God before he first chooses us. What that means is that apart from God, we live in a total what we would call depravity, a total inability, 100% to, to in any way make good, right choices that lead us to God, let alone to choose to follow him. It is God who seeks us out first. He is the one who is sovereign and provident over all things, including you and I's salvation in Jesus Christ. Christ paid the penalty, but God, through his Holy Spirit, chooses to draw some towards him and not others. And so when we take on the judgment seat, when we favor people in the church context over others, in whatever ways we do it, and we'll get to some of those at the end, we have to understand it violates the sovereignty of God because it makes us the judge and not him. See, we, we don't have not only the room to judge, which we'll talk about, but we don't have the capacity. God did not put us in charge of the judgment of human souls. He put us in charge of the proclamation of, of the gospel and of his word, the whole breadth of scripture. And we are not to judge what people do with that. We, we are in faith to wait for him to be the rightful judge, and he will judge, but it is not up to us. And so when we show favor to other people, we are judging one as better and one as worse. And James finds that to be an egregious violation of the sovereignty of God because we are in charge. We don't get to say who is worthy or who is not, who is more worthy or who is less. It is for God alone to decide and for us to not even worry about. It's shocking how much through scripture God tells us not to worry about being the judge. He, he tells us because we live in him, we don't have to judge. We can be free to live out lives that are in obedience to Christ and in the love of him, even when people wrong us, because we can be confident in the fact that he will be our ultimate judge and vindicator. We don't have to look down on people who are living lives that we would deem as sinful or worse. And, and, and even more than that, we shouldn't because God will take care of it. If they are going to be judged, they are, God will judge them. And at the end of the day, every one of us will sit on that judgment seat. And we will be judged by the same exact standard. Were you a follower of Christ? It's not going to be about how much money you gave. 
It's not going to be about how much power you had. It's not going to be about how many church luncheons you helped set up or how many times you volunteered to, to be on a worship team or in a tech booth or to serve a meal or to help somebody in the church who's in need. None of those things are ultimately going to matter on the judgment seat. And so here's what God says in the end in all of this. When we look at the beautiful display of the gospel, ultimately, there aren't people of various degrees of egregiousness in God's eyes. There's only man and God. See, look at it this way. Imagine you're sitting in church, and all of a sudden, you know, you're just sitting there, you're in your normal seat, and all of a sudden, you know, Will Smith walks in the door, <laughs> or, you know, Tom Brady walks in the door, or whoever your famous person that would just make you go, ah, you know, is, they walk in the door and they just sit right next to you, right? And you see them, and, and, and now, honestly, you can't believe it. Like, you are, you are shocked, and you might get a little giddy, you probably will stumble over your words, you wouldn't even know what to say, but just picture the excitement that you would have over that person sitting there, and how, how grandiose they might seem to you in the midst of, of all of that. Now, now picture that after that, the, the Lord himself shows up in the midst of our worship service. We're sitting in Stoprez, you know, Will Smith or whoever it is is next to us, Tom Brady, and, and all of a sudden God is there. Now, now understand in comparison, how much would you care about any celebrity you could possibly name, any famous person, any person who you would hold in high esteem, you know, Bill Gates, a, a Tim Cook from Apple, you know, for those tech geeks of us. If the presence of the Lord were to appear, we wouldn't even think about them anymore. And that's how God wants it. Like, in, in comparison, when we come to be the body of Christ, God is, ought to be so big to us that we don't even have the ability to show favoritism, right? There, there might be a little bit of a uh, favor here and there, but when, when it's God and, and the rest, really what we're all left with is we're all just people that are all in the same boat. We are all sinners living under the grace of Jesus Christ. And so to violate that just goes against the very nature and his sovereignty of who God is. Second, to, for, the, for James, favoritism is wrong because it aligns you with God's enemies. Now, this is important. Let's look at verse 5, um, five 6, and 7 real quick. Um, Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs in the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? Number 6. But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? A quick distinction before we launch into this. We're going we're to get into some rich and poor language here. It is important to understand this. Some people will make an argument based off of passages like this and others that, that the rich are bad always and that the poor are good always. It's really important to understand that God does not make that distinction. There are rich people in scripture and in our churches and in our lives today that have abundant measures of wealth, that are godly, loving, fearing people that, that use their resources to lift the cross high. And there are poor people who will spend eternity in punishment because of the fact that they don't even acknowledge who a God is, right? The distinction, we can't make a distinction of good Christian, bad Christian by comparing it to poor and rich. That's not what's happening here. But what James is talking about are that there, there is a tendency, like 
When you have wealth, there are those in our society who would seek to use that wealth and oppress those who are below them in the economic status line. And so while this is not a, a passage that is speaking in all generalities, all rich, bad, all poor, good. No, but what it's saying is there are, there are rich. Generally, the Lord chooses to work through those who have, have need in scripture. And the rich are this euphemism for those who are at the top of the power rank and they are, they are oppressing people below them. And so what he's saying is here, well, even by showing favor to the rich, you're actually aligning yourselves with enemies of God because it's the rich who are oppressing God's people in this time. And so, so the, why, why would you butter up to the people that actually don't line themselves with God's value and virtue? See, we, we do this. We have, we have celebrities, we have people in our minds today that we hold in the highest esteem, that we make excuses for, that don't know or serve the Lord whatsoever. They don't, and, and we love them, and we, we follow them on, on our social media accounts, and we watch every movie they're ever in, and we long to meet them, and we lose the words if we ever did meet them. But, but ask yourself, why? What, what is that doing to you? See, I know people that are like the biggest Apple technology fanboys ever. Now, I like Apple devices, but I'm very pragmatic. I like them because they work well, and I buy them so that I can work well. Um, I don't worship the ground that Apple creators walk on. I don't, and here's why. They don't know me. They don't care about me. They care about the thousand dollars I'll plunk down for an iPhone, but they don't care about me. See, we, when we favor people for earthly reasons, this, this is really important to understand, when we pay, favor people for earthly reasons, we get earthly results. When we favor people for earthly reasons, we end up with earthly results. We end up walking the ways of the world because what we do is we demonstrate, as much as we speak the truth of scripture, through our favoritism of certain people and certain things, we demonstrate what it is that we value. And when we favor people for worldly reasons, we demonstrate that we value those worldly things, perhaps even above other more important, godly, biblical, scripturally good and true things. And so what James is saying here is, listen, these people are, are, aren't even after your own good. You're trying to align yourselves with them, maybe because you'll get something, right? You're, you're, you're asking or rendering to Caesar way more than God has asked you to give and render to Caesar, right? He just says, give Caesar what's his, his coin, and give God what's his. All else, <laughs> everything, all of yourself. Right, to take up your cross and to die. And so that's all James is saying here. He's saying, be careful that you, that you don't show favoritism to people that really don't have you know, the Lord's heart and your interest in mind. It's just a pragmatic, terrible decision to make. Number three, um, James finds favoritism bad because it violates God's commandment to keep um, loving your neighbor. Hear this. This is in verse 8 through 11. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin, and you are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. And then he does a comparison between adultery you know, and murder and, and so forth. But, but what he's saying is, listen, if we show favor to someone, not others, 
it violates God's command to love our neighbor, right? We, a, few, a few weeks ago, we looked at the parables, and we had the parable of the Good Samaritan, and the demonstration of that parable was that someone asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? And he uses some of the most like egregious separation of hatred between two people to demonstrate who, how far your neighbor actually goes, right? It's not just the person that lives next to you or the people that you like to sit in church with. Your neighbor is everyone. All of us are your neighbor. And so everybody in this world deserves that love. And so when Jesus says, love your neighbor, when we favor those who we want over others, we fail to show the love of God. We fail that command to love thy neighbor. And so because it goes in direct violation of God's law, James finds favoritism bad in this regard. There's one more, and it's the very end. James Number four, thinks favoritism is bad because, is wrong because, it fails to display God's mercy. And he's very clear about this. Verse 12, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. And mercy triumphs over judgment. What does this mean? So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. See, what he's saying is, we as people who are sinners in the sight of God, saved and reconciled by the blood of Jesus Christ, we ought to act in our everyday choices and lives as if we are under the law of liberty. We're not under the law. We are not hold, held down by the law of scripture. Because if we were, we would all be doomed. But we must live as people who were completely and utterly screwed under the law, but yet were ransomed. We were pulled out, not by any of our own merit, but because God sent his son to live a perfect life, to go to the cross and to die for our sins, and then to reconcile us to himself so that God would look at us. See, when we stand in the judgment seat, we need to understand that we will be judged. You will go and you will stand before a fully righteous God and he will run you through all of the ways in which you have transgressed, all of them. And you will stand guilty before your God, before your creator, before your maker. But the Lord will come in, Jesus will come in and say, wait, he's one of mine. And because Jesus calls us his own, we, through him, get to be sons of God instead, sons and daughters of God instead. And, and James is saying, listen, if that's the truth, if you buy that, which is the whole reason we're gathering in worship today, then you have to live as someone who is under that law. You have to live as someone who feels the weight of your sin and your guilt as a traitor against the word of God, but then feels the weight lifted. See, we should never forget our sin. If you remember back about a year or so ago, we were looking at the book of Romans, and the whole point of Romans is the first like third of it just tears down the Christian. It tears him down as a guilty sinner who has zero hope. And Paul harps on it over and over and over. We keep expecting him to go grace, but he doesn't. He stays in the midst of the darkness because he wants 
us to feel the weight because only if we understand how messy and how filthy and how dirty and how sinful we are on our own, only then can we live as saved brothers and sisters in appreciation, in awe, and in, 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 to, to praise of the glory of the God who saved us. See, every morning you should get up and you should have the mindset of, I don't deserve to have woken up this morning. But God has graciously chosen to wake me up. So God, what do you have for me today? And when we do that to other people, when other people wrong us, or we just they, they do things we don't like, or we don't want to give them the same level of respect and credibility as those who we want to naturally favor, every time we look at somebody like that, and we see them through the lens of God instead, and we show them mercy, and when they wrong us, we forgive quickly, and we just shake things off, Every time we do that, we display on earth the mercy of God in heaven. Every single time. When you love a neighbor, even though they don't deserve it, when you have a conversation with someone, even though they annoy the living daylights out of you, and you would rather talk to those people because they're more like you, and these guys are less like you, and you don't want to talk to so-and-so because you know they're a Biden or a Trump supporter, and you know you're just going to have that conversation again, and we're just tired of it. Or you know you don't want to talk to this person because they're, you know, COVID paranoid and you don't believe COVID is even real. Or whatever it is, whatever the thing is that divides you, every time you cross the threshold and you invest in the lives of people all across the board, every time you see humans as one equal with the chasm and God on the other side and Jesus as the bridge of it, you display the mercy of God. And James tells us that that is how we need to live. And he gives us a warning that judgment, in verse 13, is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. See, we talked about that parable too. There's the parable of, of, of the, you know, the unforgiven debt. I don't know exactly remember what the, what the caption is. But there's the, the servant who owes like millions, who is forgiven by his master, who then goes and doesn't forgive the dollar that a friend of his owes and throws him in jail, right? That's the perfect example of, of us who have been shown great mercy, turning around and then not showing it to other people. And God has zero time for that. And James tells us that if we live that way, we will also have judgment without mercy when our time comes. And he tells us, and this is the, the thrust of the Christian life, he tells us in the very end, mercy triumphs judgment. In our lives, even when we feel that we are righteously judging, mercy always will triumph judgment every single time without fail. And so James tells us that we ought to not show favor to certain people. We just cannot do it, right? We, we are in a body of believers who are vastly different human beings, who live across various spectrums of of economic differences, of ideological and political differences, of racial tensions, all the things that define the issues in our world right now. We come down on all these different sides of the spectrum. Uh, some of us are just personality-wise, not the way that others would want them to be, and all of those things that make up the body. But one of the things that we need to understand is that that very fact is the beauty of Christ's bride, the church. It is a people that may or may not be entirely different from one another, but, but we all live under the common thread 
of the grace and the mercy of Jesus Christ. And the more we live in that unity, the more we don't favor things and, and people amongst the body of Christ and outside, the more we don't display a judgment attitude, but show mercy, the more we do those things, the more we become witness bearers of the gospel of Jesus, which ultimately is the reason we are called into existence as his bride, the church. As you go home this week, I want you to pray. And I want you to ask yourself, where does your favor lie? What are your natural tendencies? What are the ways in which you display a, a sinful favoritism? It might be in the people that you uh, interact with after the service is done, if you're, you know, here, if you're in person. Um, it might be in the people in your workplace who you just chose, choose to stay away from because, ah, you just don't have the patience today <laughs> and you deserve some rest. Maybe what you deserve is to interact with that person. Maybe you need to interact with that person. Maybe the Spirit is pushing you. Maybe the Lord wants you to be the person who shines Christ into that other man or woman's life. Maybe there are people in church who you are bitter towards. You have brothers and sisters who are in the body with you, who for whatever reason have wronged you. Whoever it might be, yeah, maybe, maybe it's a leader, maybe it's not, maybe it's a fellow parishioner, maybe it's someone who said something wrong to you that really annoyed you five years ago. You have to forgive. Because that's what the definition of the church is. And so this week, I want you to think and I want you to pray. And I'm going to give you a concrete exercise. I want you to think of five specific people that you need to spend some time loving, respecting, giving your attention to this week that maybe you haven't before. That person that you've always ignored because, oh, man, they're just difficult to talk to. Give them your time and your effort this week. Allow the Spirit to guide and lead those conversations. If there are people that you go to church with that you need to reconcile with, do it today. Don't wait. Don't go home and say, I'll have lunch. And then, no, leave church, get in your car, pick up your phone, call them. If you can socially distance, get together, even better. If not, on the phone, say, I'm sorry for my part in whatever discrepancy we had. I would love to reconcile. What is it going to take to do that? And see how God works. When we are a body who stops favoring ones above others, we begin to display the glory of Christ, and we live out our calling as God's people. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your hard truth this morning. Uh, Lord, your, uh, your son, your, your, your man James is not one to mince words. And we thank you that you created him that way, that you gave him that type of intellect and that type of wit to just punch us when we need to be. We thank you for your truth in, in the book of James that you've given through your Holy Spirit. And Father, we thank you um, for the mercy that you display to us. Father, for every person that we don't want to favor, there is us whom you have no reason to favor, but yet you did. You held us up in the highest place. And you tell us that through Jesus Christ, we might sit at the right hand of the Father along with him. That we, through Christ, would be sons and daughters of you. And so, Father, we ask that you give us encouragement and strength and wisdom in how we interact with people, that you would point us in the, in the directions in which we need to grow, and that you would give us people who need 
to feel our presence in their lives, whom we need to interact with, whom we need to love. God, we pray that this church would become a body that so radiantly displays the glory of, of your Son, Jesus Christ, through our love of people, no matter who walks through this door. Father, from, from the wealthiest man in the city of Stowe, whoever he might be or she might be, to, to the poorest person who, who smells and has clothes that they haven't washed in weeks. God, we pray that no matter who it is who walks in here, that they would feel the, the brother and sisterhood and the love of your church, because that's as Christ intends it. God, give us strength to do that. Give us wisdom. Move us in that direction painfully if necessary. And be with us this week as we go and live out your gospel in the world that knows none. We love you and we praise you. And all his people said,